This episode is brought to you by Progressive. Are you driving your car or doing laundry right now? Podcasts go best when they're bundled with another activity. Like Progressive home and auto policies, they're best when they're bundled too. Having these two policies together makes insurance easier and could help you save. Customers who save by switching their home and car insurance to Progressive save nearly $800 on average. Quote a home and car bundle today at Progressive.com. Progressive Casualty Insurance Company and Affiliates. National average 12-month savings of $793 by new customers surveyed who saved with Progressive between June 2021 and May 2022. Potential savings will vary. AI is making waves in every field it touches. President Biden is now on TikTok and the election draws closer each day. With so much going on in the world, it is hard to keep up with it all, let me tell you. Hi, I'm Kai Rizdal, the co-host of Make Me Smart. It's a podcast from Marketplace. And every weekday, Kimberly Adams and I break down the latest in business and the economy with short daily episodes to make it easy for you to stay in the know. Listen to Make Me Smart wherever you get your podcasts. Hello and welcome to Little Gold Men, the award season podcast from Vanity Fair. It's such an honor to present this next award. And here are the nominees. And... The Oscar goes to... And the Oscar goes to... And I can't deny the fact that you like me right now. You like me. I'm the king of the world. There's a mistake. Moonlight, you guys won Best Picture. I'm Katie Rich, the deputy editor of VanityFair.com, and I'm here with our digital director, Mike Hogan. Hey, Katie. Our chief critic, Richard Lawson. Hello. And our senior writer, Joanna Robinson. Hi, Katie. It's so good to all be here together. Uh, We (laughs) all had really busy weekends, um, and it's a really busy time in the Oscar race, so there's a ton to talk about. Richard, Joanna, and I were all at film festivals over the weekend in completely different parts of the country, which is, um, you know, kind of funny to all check back in. So uh, we're going to start by kind of just like going through all of that, talk about Parasite, talk about Bombshell. And then uh, as Joanna will tease, we have an interview with Laura Dern in the back half of this episode. Um, so anyway, Richard, let's start with you. Uh, furthest east in the country, you were at the Hamptons Film Festival this weekend, and it, it was your first time, right? Yes, I'd never been to the festival, though I'd heard good things. They have a long working relationship with the New York Film Critics Circle, so they try to bring a couple people from that group every Columbus Day weekend to do various things. I was brought out ostensibly to uh, do an hour-long kind of onstage chat with Alfre Woodard, who got a sort of spotlight uh, treatment at the festival because they had Clemency, which is her big you know, Oscar hopeful movie. Um, so that was really exciting to get to talk to her. But I also, you know, was there to, you know, kind of meet people. And I went to one movie, which was Knives Out, which I had seen, but uh, my companion had not. So uh, it was interesting. Um, I think I, I texted you guys afterwards, like <laughs> the reception that that movie's met, particular messaging about like wealthy people, inherited wealth, you know, whether it's morally just to sort of pass money on to, or, or I guess maybe to take credit for, you know, your life when it's actually just been kind of handed to by a parent. The the <laughs> the excitement level in the room noticeably dipped uh, once that stuff. <laughs> in, if you could imagine in East Hampton uh, at a film festival where the top badge costs $1,700. Yeah. Um, <laughs> 
it's a great festival. It's well run. I'm not trying to shade the festival, but like it was just interesting how that movie will be received differently than it was by a relatively populous crowd in Toronto. Yeah, but this is like people, you know, being like, well, are donors really going to vote for Elizabeth Warren? It's like, that's okay. They're <laughs> right. a very small slice of the <laughs> right. uh, electorate. Although I guess if you're an Oscar voter, you know, you're... Yeah, you're more likely to be in the 1% if you're an Oscar voter. Yeah, <laughs> I, yeah at least you'll, you're, you're more likely to be thinking of passing on money, uh, if not inheriting it yourself. Sure. Right, exactly. Um, but, you know, all, all, all told, people seem to enjoy the movie. The people toward the back of the theater who had the less good badges or tickets or whatever <laughs> were much more into it than the people toward That's the so front. That's so funny. I mean, it was very stratified uh, in, a, in a really funny way, and I was sort of stuck in the middle. Um, the people with top hats and ascots <laughs> were not as interested. So, uh, you could hear so many monocles fall to the ground. <laughs> it was, uh, yeah. Um, but yeah, it's a, it's a, it's a great um, little festival, and they have it's really interestingly programmed between, you know, the big kind of awardsy stuff and then smaller things. So I, it was a treat to go out there. And Alfred Woodard was amazing. And like, if she's that good, through this whole season, through various events and schmoozing and all that, like she will be in, I think, good position, even though that's a very small, very difficult movie. Um, but yeah, she was really interesting just talking about her life and career. Um, so yeah, it was it was fun. It was it, it didn't give me a ton of a window into the award season just because I didn't didn't get to see other movies, but like, you know, the the Richies of the of East Hampton, um, they're all for <laughs> this this season of films. So. Yeah, Ethel Winter does seem like one of those people who's been a veteran for so long that, like, you can throw her into a room with anybody and she can, like, talk to anybody in it. And that's really a skill as you keep, you do Q&As and, like, awards presentations and so much for months and months and months. Yeah, and, and I think crucially, like, for the, for the kind of thing that I did with her, which is just, you know, an hour-long talk, she's got so many stories because she's been in the industry for 40-plus years and just like has met everybody and you know has you know her earlier in her career worked with all these incredible directors just right off the bat so yeah if she can you know kind of keep doing that kind of thing i think she'll she'll stick in people's minds i guess the trick is getting to people to see the movie because again it's you know about the death penalty and super dark and and heavy and and something she mentioned why she was interested in doing the film was that in speaking with the director about the pacing of the movie it's a very deliberately paced movie which works artistically but maybe it makes it a little bit harder of a sell yeah, I didn't realize she had an Oscar nomination for like her third movie ever, like in 1983. It's yeah. like incredibly early in her career. Yeah, and by then she'd already worked with Robert Altman and Alan Rudolph. And then, yeah, she did Cross Creek in 83. Yeah, I mean, it's interesting though, because I asked her about Cross Creek, which was her Oscar nominated movie. Uh, I was like, do you view that as like your big breakthrough? And she was like, I've never had a breakthrough, even now. Hmm. Huh. So she maintains wow. that sort of just like still striving kind of mentality, hmm. which is maybe how you survive and have a career as varied and interesting as she has had. Yeah. Um, well, speaking of hour-long conversations with people with long Hollywood careers, uh, Joanna, you spent the weekend sitting down with Laura Dern. Uh, all weekend. It was a two-day <laughs> extravaganza. No, yeah. I I, um, I got to chat with Laura Dern. Uh, what a joy. As part of the Mind the Gap initiative at the Mobile Film Festival, which is about um, raising awareness around the gender gap in Hollywood and stuff like that, they gave a special prize to Laura Dern um, and then did a sort of spotlight conversation um, that I got to moderate, which is really, really fun. And you will hear it um, later on in this episode. And she's incredible. But I mean, the fe- you know, and that conversation happened right before a screening of Marriage Story. Noah Baumbach was there to, you know, to present that as well. And so it was just like... Uh, a, a great weekend <laughs> for film on the Mill Valley Film Festival. There's so much going on. That film festival is just jam-packed. I saw a portrait of a lady on fire since we last spoke, and I am forever changed. Um, <laughs> that movie is pretty mind-blowing. <laughs> it's so good. So, yeah, I mean, it, it's... It, the Mill Valley Film Festival is sort of similar to the Hamptons in that, you know... 
Marin County, where it takes place, is an incredibly rich portion of the country. There's a lot of Academy voters there. So a lot of the people in the room are, you know, incredibly wealthy. What's interesting, you know, you speaking to sort of Alfre Woodard, knowing how to navigate any room, uh, Jamie Foxx came to present Just Mercy, which was the opening film. Uh, And this is a film that I liked quite a bit, um, maybe more than the TIFF uh, response, but it won the audience prize at the Valley Film Festival uh, that was just announced this morning. And I was a little surprised by that, given like everything that was there. But um, Jamie Foxx was so incredibly good at working that room. Mm -hmm. Uh, And I I was really impressed with the way, you know, like the the moderator was like, so this is a largely white audience. Like, how should they think about this movie? And he's like, what, really? Like, you know, it was was, like really funny and, um, you know, landed them an audience award. So I know that Fox is on a long uh, campaign in supporting uh, for this movie. So that's just sort of an interesting preview of what's to come from him, perhaps. Um, Was there anything else that you saw in Mill Valley that uh, you feel like you've, you've caught up on now? Um, Ford versus Ferrari, uh, was the closing night film. James Mangold was there. Uh, that, that Those cars is, go fast. That's a film that I lovingly call a dad film and I'm here for it. I like a dad <laughs> film. Yeah. I mean, all, all the usuals. I still haven't seen those popes. I still need to catch those popes, Katie, but, um, oh, well, would you like me to speak <laughs> about those popes? <laughs> but yeah. Uh, tell me, did you spend the weekend with those popes? Katie? Well, so I didn't see two popes over the weekend, but I was at film fest 919, uh, just down the road from me in Chapel Hill, which is, it's in the second year. It uh, consistently brings in this really incredible o- array of the festival movies, which I think is less of a surprise for Hamptons and Mill Valley. Cause those are places where a lot of Oscar voters are likely to be at their vacation homes. Uh, there are some Academy members who live around here, but obviously not as many. But um, Netflix really has a strong showing, or they have for the last two years. So they had um, Two Popes, Marriage Story, Dolomite is My Name, uh, The King. Um, and I talked to Anthony McCartan, who is the screenwriter of Two Popes, who was in town for a Distinguished Screenwriter Award. Um, and kind of, you know, I was talking to him about my big theory that I think people are sleeping on Two Popes, but the more that it continues to screening around and around, it's going gonna, it's gonna to build heat. Because um, it's especially at these uh, regional film festivals, you can just know that everyone is going to like it because it's such a likable movie. So I saw Motherless Brooklyn, which I thought had, you know, beautiful music and some things recommended, even if it's not my favorite thing I've seen. Uh, and Honey Boy, which I really liked. And mm-hmm. I felt like I'd heard um, kind of some kind of like reserved praise for out of Sundance. You know, it's obviously like Shia LaBeouf playing his father and writing a screenplay about himself. That's like so autobiographical that like you see the car accident that the grown version of his character has. You're like, oh, that's the exact same car accident that Shia LaBeouf had when he was filming Transformers. But it's not as navel gazing as I expected and really thoughtful and has this great performance from uh, Noah Jupe, who's also in Ford versus Ferrari and is British, which is crazy. Holy cow, that kid is really talented. Um, Although Honey Boy also backs up my theory that there should never be child actors because it's about what a horrible toll it took on Shia LaBeouf in this kid's life. Um, But then the big thing that um, maybe didn't surprise me about Film Fest 919, but I thought was fascinating, is that the Audience Award winner was Parasite, which opened in theaters this weekend, had this huge like opening box office, and also the runner-up, the runners-up were Just Mercy and Two Popes, so it really fits that narrative. Um, but just the fact that Parasite played as well as it did in Toronto or in New York to this, you know, more regional, like, you know, liberal film festival audience, but not necessarily like people who are going to see a lot of foreign films. I thought that was a really good mark in Parasite's favor as um, right, right now seems to be the moment that everyone wants to talk about Parasite and uh, and how far it can go in the Oscar race. 
I mean, yeah, it had this incredible um, opening weekend, and um, I my Twitter feed was filled up with people in New York frustrated that they couldn't get into screenings. Uh, of <laughs> yes, I saw that. There was apparently <laughs> so, there was no you couldn't see it. Yeah, so That's you know supply supply demand etc so uh yeah i mean that i think it's a film that all of us who've seen it on this podcast loved uh but like my question a question that actually came up when i was talking to um eric anderson of awards watch uh i i ran into him at the film festival and had like an, a long chat with him about who he thinks is likely uh to win etc and we were talking about parasite in best picture mm-hmm. question mark mm-hmm. what do you guys think I mean, I called it a dark horse theory when I tweeted about this, and several people were like, is it really a dark horse? And I was like, yes, like no foreign films ever won Best Picture. Come on. Right. Um, but I mean, I do, it does seem like one of those things that critics and people like us will get really excited about, and the Academy would be like, excuse me, no. Um, but also, it, I mean, the movie is so powerful, and it's like it, it's more accessible than Roma, I think. That might have been something that like kept Roma in the end. I think Parasite is more entertaining um, and more of like a, a thing that you can grasp onto. But then again, as Richard was talking about, the, um, you know, the monocles falling off at the Hamptons, I don't know what the, the richest of the rich are going to think about it. But it's also like Roma is very explicitly arty. And lofty mm-hmm. uh, in in its way, and and Parasite is not. Parasite is in a certain sense a you know genre movie, and I think that that adds to its difficulty. I think it could definitely swing a nomination. Um, you know, I think at this point I would be surprised if it didn't swing a nomination. There's sort of that that narrative is kind of already built in. Like we're all going to see this happen. Um, I would be kind of amazed if if he beat. Uh, Martin Scorsese and Tarantino and everybody else, but you know, you mean that for director cool. or picture or, for, or for, both? Well, I mean for picture. Um, yeah. I guess and for director. Uh, it just feels like it, it's the kind of movie where the Academy is like, nice work, and almost the kind of movie where the box office might not help it because they're like, that was a good popular film. Mm-hmm. You know, I don't know. That would be my concern a little bit. I feel like it might exist in some sort of perfect combination of it's a really entertaining movie and unlike Roma it doesn't open up with set, you know five minutes of a floor being mopped you know it like it gets right. you right in there <laughs> yes. it's it's super entertaining so there's that factor it's been successful there's that factor but it's a it's a Korean film it has you know something it has some weight to it so it's the kind of thing that people can kind of congratulate themselves for seeing you know right you know so it, it, it's already enough to be the sort of like calling card well I have you seen parasite yeah but it's also like solidly safely entertaining you yeah. know so it does yeah. both really well which I feel like is a major asset just the fact that it's not English language um, I think gives it that highbrow cast to it right you know it's like Amelie or something like that Amelie is like you know that is a really populist sort of romantic fun quirky movie but it is artistic because it is French you know sort of <laughs> we thing we Americans are really easily tricked by foreign yeah. languages <laughs> well it's like how so, I yeah. kind of have no idea if some British actors are good actors or if I just like their accent <laughs> <laughs> But but it's in that kind of get out range of, you know, social commentary packaged as in like arty horror, which, you know, uh, which uh, get out one screenplay and came kind of close on picture, got mm-hmm. the picture nomination. But I just it would be surprising to me if it fully came in, especially because it's not going to have a constituency. The other thing that we sometimes think about with winning best picture is, you know, how many 
friends and people who worked on the movie and all that um, and past coworkers are in the Academy. And even right. though this mm. is a more international Academy than it has ever been before, you're not going to have like a Disney contingent necessarily voting for this movie. For Although instance. Bong Joon-ho has made um, a movie for Netflix and made, um, I guess, No Piercer was Weinstein Company. So he has he has more industry connections than you right. know, the director of Portion well, of Lady on Fire or something. Right, right. What about yeah. a What about a director win? That's the one that I feel, I don't know if I would predict it outright. You've got Quentin Tarantino, who has never won Best Director, and he's never had a film win Best Picture, so there's a really strong narrative for him there. Um, but especially given how international the director's branch has been um, the last couple of years, that seems very possible. Yeah, and I would yeah. be tempted to say that something working against the film as a whole, but also weirdly the director campaign, is that there isn't really, all the performances are great, but there's not like a single performance that's really standing out and could get no- nominated for things. I, I feel like, And I feel like some, sometimes it helps to have those things linked together. But then again, you mm-hmm. know, like Life of Pi, Ang Lee won Best Director for that and there was no, you know, standout performance. I mean, uh, look, all the, the tiger. performances... Yeah, well, sure, yes, the tiger. <laughs> and, and that's not to say that the performances in Parasite aren't good, but like, I think it's really just depends on what rubric voters are using this year. And I think like Mark Harris said on this podcast a few weeks ago, because it's a newer, the branch, the director's branch is, you know, at least more diverse in terms of nationality, um, that we don't really know how they're going to vote. But I think that if they wanted to do something different, kind of continue the thing of nominating Pawlikowski for Cold War last year, there's no kind of easier, more palatable, more triumphant nominee slash winner than Bong Joon-ho for this movie because it checks a lot of boxes. I think it's going to check them in the nomination round. Yeah. I think it's just going to be tough for it to yeah. to actually vault over Scorsese and Tarantino. But I could be wrong. Especially because Tarantino's never won. Yeah. That's right. Yeah. Mm-hmm, mm-hmm. I, I do think if they wanted to campaign um, Song Kang-ho, who plays the, the father of the, mm-hmm. the Kim family, kind of the, the yeah. striving family, uh, he seems like a good place to, if they could like rally all their acting energy behind and supporting actor, yeah. as we'll talk about, um, has a little bit more room than best actor, at least. I, I would agree with that. Like, if there is one standout, uh, it would be him. Uh, if only for, like, one shot that's just on his face for a really long time. Um, <laughs> the, yeah, I, I mean, I think I think I agree with everyone that, like, I, I think director might be the, the best place for this to slot in. Then a nomination for Best Picture feels, like, you know, fairly, I don't know, if not safe, then maybe likely. And then... But the win is is a yeah it's a tough tough road to hoe. Um, but I but it would be a win that would really please me. <laughs> I mean it's it's you know if we talk about what what the academy is looking for is a movie with a message, a movie that says like we care about the world or whatever. Um, I think Parasite is one of the best examples of that this year of something that really threads that needle of like just really really great filmmaking really entertaining but with something to say but mm-hmm. not something to say that i feel is like you know the only thing the movie has going for it you know yeah and going back to the knives out thing it is safely in another country so like uh, the, the the kind of witless rich people are not exactly our witless rich people so like <laughs> the way that the hamptons crowd did not at all laugh at tony collette's character because i think they were like are they making fun of me um, <laughs> i don't think that that's maybe quite as applicable with parasite. It's, it's also a more universal i think message yeah. um parasite because it's it is about the kind of haves versus the have-nots and this this class war and this idea i mean again i, I said this before but um at tiff it seemed like every movie was about class war mm-hmm. and about the idea that around the globe like income inequality wherever you want to call it is increasing um and i think what's interesting about the film and sort of 
easier for everyone to embrace is that it's about the corrosion of everybody in that kind of system. Like everybody is behaving very badly because uh, they're in a really sick, unnatural environment versus in Knives Out, you do have a little bit of a sort of, you know, saintly poor person right. and a bunch of really evil rich people, which may actually be uh, how it is. I don't know. But um, but I think this, this one <laughs> spreads it out a little bit yeah, more. That's fair. Yeah. Yeah. I'm Bobby Finger. And I'm Lindsay Weber. Do you ever see a new face or name on your news feeds and say, who the heck is that? Our podcast, Who Weekly, is everything you need to know about the celebrities you don't. Think of us as your cheat code to People Magazine, your glossary for Hollywood, a shortcut to understanding pop culture at large. For the past eight years, Who Weekly has been telling listeners everything they need to know about the celebrities they don't. The New Yorker says we spelunk deep into the demimonde with convivial delight. That's a direct quote. Mostly, we're going to explain to you Irish star Barry Keoghan's sudden rise to fame and relationship with a not-so-under-the-radar pop princess named Sabrina. The fake wedding Real Housewives star Cynthia Bailey had to promote a limo rental company. And why all the Gen Zers you know are talking about a guy named Benson Boone. Each episode goes deep into the biggest celebrity stories of the moment. And if you're still confused, we even have a weekly call-in episode where we answer the most burning celebrity queries. Who Weekly airs twice weekly with brand new episodes on Tuesdays and Fridays. Listen and follow Who Weekly, an Odyssey podcast, available now for free on the Odyssey app and wherever you get your podcasts. Um, well, speaking of, of movies that have something to say about the present moment, we should talk a little bit about Bombshell, which none of us have seen, so we can't get into too much detail. But it had this big, um, splashy premiere in Los Angeles on Sunday. Uh, writer Katie Walsh went and covered it for us and kind of reported back on the Q&A and the buzz that people are talking about it. And I think the big takeaway, as we probably expected, is Charlize Theron transforming into Megyn Kelly with the help of prosthetics from the guy who did the makeup for Darkest Hour. Um Again, like none of us have seen the movie, but does Bombshell kind of emerging as this best actress contender and maybe more? Does that feel about right to you guys? Yeah, I mean, I, I, I'm I'm excited to hear that it's good. Um, you know, obviously, Katie was into it. Um, I talked to another former colleague who who saw it and she really liked it. Um, she said that it's it, it's it's nice that it's a, a movie about women where women talking to each other about you know like like it, it has all that behind it. I think for me the 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 question mark had always been that it, the Jay Roach of it all. Like Katie, you and I were talking about this before we started recording. We're like. You know, that's the guy who made Trumbo, and he's made like some good TV <laughs> movies that have been political, a game change and um, recount um, mm -hmm. that both of which feature really strong um, female performances. Um, but like, would it be big enough for the movies? Would it be big enough for the big screen? And it seems, judging from this initial reaction, um, they're doing a screening on Sunday night in New York uh, with like where Charlize will be there and Jay Roach will be there. So they're kind of repeating what they did um, in L.A. It seems like it is, and that's that's exciting because for a variety of reasons, but the, the chief one being that, like we've mentioned before in the past weeks, is like the actress race this year, for whatever reason, just feels a little bit less stacked than the actor race. So, so it's nice to have a new name sort of firmly put in, in, in contention. Yeah, I, I really enjoyed the teaser trailer where um, Charlize says "Hold my beer" and then thinks better of it and beats everybody at pool and darts. Have you guys seen that? <laughs> Just sorry, I've been watching a lot of sports. <laughs> that Bud ad plays a lot. Her yeah. new Budweiser ad. Um, I yeah, I agree. I think that we could use more. Um, we could use more. Um, competition in this race. I mean, I think Renee, we talked about Renee last week. Like, I think Renee is awesome, but um, it would be fun if we didn't have to like crown this thing uh, however many months away we are from the actual Oscar night. Yeah, it would make this podcast a little more exciting. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> well, as um, uh, Scott Feinberg at The Hollywood Reporter, who we quote a lot, did a kind of piece about Bombshell and all the business going on this weekend and pointed out that if you know if it comes down to Charlize Theron playing Megyn Kelly, who is a controversial figure now and has been in the past, uh, versus Renee Zellweger, 
Zellweger as Judy Garland, who is kind of, you know, elevated to Hollywood sainthood status, like that might not be such a hard choice for Academy members to make, um, even if both, both performances are great. Is she the hero of this, Megyn Kelly? I, I don't know. I mean, Gretchen Carlson, who played by Nicole Kidman, is also a figure, and she was the first one to file the lawsuit against uh, Roger Ailes. I mean, something that Charlize Theron was really careful to talk about at that Q&A was, like, this is not about people being all good or all bad. Like, this is trying to, like, take Megyn Kelly as who she is, kind of uh, the the good side and the bad side. Um, and I think that's going to be a narrative that they promote a lot, especially, as, as I was telling you guys before, like, Megyn Kelly's been tweeting a lot about some stuff that, uh, you know, traditional Hollywood liberals might not want to hear about. Um, but I think, like, a complex heroine, like, seems like a good way to approach her in a story like this. Yeah. Yeah, apparently the Santa is white kids thing is in the movie, which is good. Because it's like, I mean, Megyn Kelly has said some, like, really bad stuff, and, and in particular <laughs> about race. And, like, so I, the, I'm i glad to hear that the movie is ignoring that. I didn't expect someone like Jay Roach to ignore that because he kind of wears his politics on his sleeve, and they're definitely not Megyn Kelly's politics. Um, sure. But, again, you do always, you know, uh, f- whenever this kind of thing happens, you the conversation comes up. is like, okay, even if there is mild criticism in the movie, isn't giving them a movie – its own act of, you know, endorsement in a way, like veneration. I don't know. If, I don't think that's always true, certainly. But um, if yeah. I had to make a prediction right now, mm-hmm. and we do some predictions on this show, what I would say <laughs> that it's going to be very, very hard. If this thing becomes a real contender, it's going to be very, very hard to keep a lid on the hundreds of people who are going to say that this was wrong, that was wrong, you know, this person was self-serving and they fell for it. That person actually is a monster and anyone who thinks that they have, you know, qualities of heroism are full of it. Like, th- this this seems like a prime candidate to get sort of ripped to shred in, like, the discourse mm-hmm. wars. Mm-hmm. Um, but who knows? You know, it, that, I would, that would be, if I were working on the film... That's what I would be starting to anticipate is like, wh- yeah. where where are we going to get shot at here in like op-eds and things? Um, and, and what's the plan to kind of take it from there? I mean, to your point, you know, Game Change was very well done and did sort of turn Steve Schmidt and Nicole Wallace. I mean, I think arguably Nicole Wallace has a show on MSNBC because Game Change was so good. Right. You know, yeah. and so yeah. like he knows how to effectively take people on the kind of right side of the equation and and show them warts and all and also make you root for them. So maybe it will work, but the stakes here would be would be high. Yeah. Another um, another film that I saw at the Mill Valley Film Festival was The Report, uh, which I actually liked way more than the, I don't know, kind of very tepid buzz that I had heard around it. Um, and not tepid, but just sort of like I hadn't heard raves and then I just wound up really, really, really liking it. But um, the way that that film treats, and you know, the filmmaker that was there talking about it, the way that that film treats John McCain, who became this like incredibly divisive figure. And, um, you know, the director was just saying like, this is a this is a person who I did not wind up agreeing with a good deal in the later years of his life. But this is a thing that he did that was very good and important, and I wanted to honor that. And he's like, and I think that that's possible. I think you don't need to throw the baby out with the bathwater. And so it, I'm not... I don't really want to compare Megan Kelly and John McCain, but I'm just saying <laughs> I am I am interested in a narrative that's like here's a person that you've been angry at, but here is something that they did one, at least once in their life that uh, has an enormous amount of value. And that's an okay thing to consider, you know? Mm-hmm. I, I think my other question in, in terms of talking about interest level is, you know, 
it's not exactly the same story, but Showtime just did a whole miniseries about Roger Ailes with Russell yep. Crowe and Naomi Watts, and I, that thing barely made any sort of. I mean, maybe it was. I don't know what the ratings numbers were, but like in terms of conversation that I see in the yes, the limited purview of who I follow on Twitter or whatever. Like, I just didn't. I don't. I don't feel like anyone was really talking about. Well, it, it's so. tough because it's the same. Ultimately, it's kind of in some ways the same story that Succession is telling. Mm, too, mm-hmm, you know. I mm-hmm. mean, there are all these different versions of this. Like, what? How did Fox News happen, and how does it continue to happen, and, and why, and what? How does it play into the Me Too era and Trump and all the rest of it? Um, so, yeah. I mean, one could argue that it's good that that um, the Ailes Showtime series, which is quite good, didn't make as much of a dent, so that people aren't completely exhausted by it. But there is clearly not a completely unlimited uh, thirst, I guess, to see this story. The one problem is that Ailes is such a repulsive figure. Yeah, you know, yeah. Uh, it, it's hard. And maybe, maybe that maybe Bombshell's part of its success is that. It doesn't center him, you know. Yeah, like yeah. it's in, it's who is it? It's John Lithgow, right? John Lithgow. Yeah, yeah. And, and John Lithgow is such like a cuddly figure that it kind of makes you feel like, okay, I feel like I can handle <laughs> spending time with Roger Ailes because I know that I like John Lithgow. And I think they said in the in the event in L.A., like having John Lithgow as this very like respectful, like nice man playing this monster um, was very helpful as actors. Also, Richard Kind as Rudy Giuliani, which I did not know about until I read these reports. Amazing. That kind of blew my mind. That's Holy crap. That's pretty great. Yeah. Well, the, the movie I'm really excited is um, the one about Ellen's um, football game with W coming out <laughs> <Yeah>. next year. <laughs> <laughs> it's a one shot, single take. Yeah, yeah. yeah. Mm, In your <laughs> Yeah. <laughs> Be nice. Uh, <laughs> um, so this week, uh, The Lighthouse is going to be coming out in limited release, and we wanted to use that maybe as a uh, opportunity to talk about the supporting actor race, um, Willem Dafoe, who has been on a really interesting Oscar hot streak uh, the last couple of years. Like, he got nominated for the Van Gogh movie that uh, uh, very few people saw, as far as I know. Um, the Lighthouse is a really strange movie and very interesting, but very strange. Um, but Willem Dafoe's uh, power for the Oscars makes me think that he can get in there for this. Um but we, if we're going to talk about supporting actor, I feel like we have kind of have to start and end with Brad Pitt. Do you guys feel like it's still his race to lose? That seems to be the conventional wisdom, although, you know, I think it really depends on not to, like, put myself in a position of power or whatever, but, like, it kind of depends on those early critics awards, you know, mm-hmm. because like because the movie, the movie came out long enough ago. Um, it still definitely has a ton of awards momentum, but like the kind of clarifying the sort of saying like, yes, we are viewing Brad Pitt's as a supporting performance. You know, I think that will sort of maybe kind of decide things. Um, but he does have a lot of competition this year. Um, Defoe being one of them for, for sure. Seems like Pacino, you know, cannot be ruled out. I and still Pesci, have not right? seen, um, yeah, I'm looking at Gold Derby, and there's a lot of Pacino. I don't see any Pesci, but I don't. What do, what do I know? I mean, Pacino's is definitely the flashier performance in The Irishman. Yeah. Well, and Pesci famously, like, or I think famously, just like won't do press. Like, and, and he like he was like at the New York Film Festival Q and A, and like someone asked him a question, he was like, no. I'm just not going to do it. So yeah. I guess Pesci did the role, and that's all he's going to do for this. There's a lot Oscar. of that going around this year. Mm-hmm. There's a lot of people who are just <laughs> a lot like, of cranky old men. Mm-hmm, mm-hmm. I'm going to plant my dark horse flag on Jamie Foxx, having seen him work a room of Academy voters. Um, not to, I don't know to win, but I think I think we are not thinking of him the same way we should be thinking about him, and just how good he can be at. Um, the campaign trail. Mm-hmm. So it's a good performance in a movie that is, I feel fairly mixed on, mixed positive on, um, but it's a good performance. Um, 
you know, uh, Willem Dafoe, it's hard to like pit it against Willem Dafoe, who's like leaving every single thing that he's ever owned on the table with the lighthouse. <laughs> but, um, <laughs> but I mean, you know, camp- campaign is so important. And like, if Brad Pitt is just not interested in campaigning, which is what it kind of seems like, maybe, but he maybe did maybe. a whole bunch of stuff around Ad Astra that was clearly like, hello, remember me and my Oscar worthy role. It's so, it's so hard to figure out what's really going on because I also have heard that Jamie Foxx is not interested in any of this, but that he will do stuff, you know, on behalf of Michael B. Jordan. But you're not saying that was Michael B. Jordan there? No. So, it was just Jamie Foxx. Yeah. So, yeah. I, I, so it's, it's, it's unclear. It seems like the cool thing now is to publicly or not publicly, but, you know. <laughs> Uh, state for the record that you could care less and that you're not campaigning and, and then, then actually, also campaign. I mean, I think the other thing about Jamie Foxx that's interesting, in a, this is a year of uh, a lot of performers either enjoying a quote-unquote comeback or at least a return to form. Renee Zellweger, Brad Pitt's been steadily working, but like this is like a really big year for him. Um, you know, sort of post- Angelina, like it, it's 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 kind of rebuilding and, and and a successful one for him. And then you have Eddie Murphy in My Name Is Dolomite, and then you have Jamie Foxx, who Jamie Foxx hasn't really gone anywhere. He's been in the public consciousness, but he hasn't acted in a while, and he certainly hasn't done a serious drama like this for a long time. Um, so I think that there's there's a narrative there that's you know sometimes that Oscar nomination is a welcome back in. You know, think about the late Robert Forster, who was you know I mean he was much more of a, a sort of outlier when he was nominated for Jackie Brown, but the academy likes that kind of welcome you know we're we're going to we're going to turn your your membership to active again like welcome you know um so i don't know i think Jamie Foxx could benefit off of that on top of what is yes a very strong performance in a really socially urgent movie pour some out yeah. for robert forster by the way can yeah. we take a moment there oh my god yeah, mm. yeah. i i went back and i didn't rewatch the whole of jackie brown but i like found some clips of him on YouTube, of his scenes on youtube he's so good in that movie yeah oh yeah. it's such like a warm performance i love it so much I know you were talking, Richard, about how um, if, you know, Best Actress becomes more competitive, it will give us something to talk about. But I keep thinking of Brad Pitt and Supporting Actor being like, okay, let's just have one thing crossed off the list. Like, we just know he's going to get it. I can, like, worry about other things. Um, but maybe that's a just, just personal, <laughs> like, I follow this race too closely attitude about it. I just want Brad Pitt to have an Oscar, guys. I'm for it. Like, I'm I'm for it. I'm not, you know, and, and I don't want to be like... I don't want to give Brad Pitt the whole, like, Bradley Cooper doesn't really want to do this interview treatment uh, that happened last year. So, like, I'm not trying to, like, throw a bat under the bus. It's just, like, I mean, Willem Dafoe, I would also like him to have an Oscar. I was so... I'm still mad about the Florida Project year. And um, people really love The Lighthouse a lot. A lot more than I thought when I saw it. Um, And it's such, like, a gonzo performance. So, you know... That this it would be a really fun one for Defoe to win for. So, yeah. I'm Alex Schwartz. I'm Nomi Fry. I'm Vincent Cunningham, and this is Critics at Large, a New Yorker podcast for the culturally curious. Each week, we're going to talk about a big idea that's showing up across the cultural landscape, and we'll trace it through all the mediums we love. Books, movies, television, music, art. And I always want to talk about celebrity gossip, too. Of course. What are you guys excited to cover in the next few months? There's a new translation of The Iliad that's coming out, Emily Wilson. I'm really excited to see whether I can read The Iliad again, whether I'm that literate. I mean, the jury is out. I can't wait to hear Adam Driver go again in an Italian accent in Michael Mann's Ferrari. <laughs> he can't stop. I mean, and and bless him. I can't wait. Molto bene. Molto bene. <laughs> <laughs> 
We hope you'll join us for new episodes each Thursday. Follow Critics at Large today, wherever you get podcasts. You really don't want to miss this. Don't. Don't miss this. Don't miss it. See you soon. (laughs) So you're about to hear my onstage conversation from the Mill Valley Film Festival with Laura Dern. I just want to give you a smidge of context. First of all, three clips played before the conversation. One from uh, Big Little Lies, one from uh, Marriage Story, and one from Little Women, where she, uh, playing Marmy, the matriarch of the March family, talks about her anger. And so that's something we talked about. I just want to let you know that that's what we're referring to. Also, Brenda Chapman, who directed uh, Brave, sort of gave Laura the award and introduction. So if you hear the name Brenda, that's what we're referring to. Um and uh, lastly, shout out to Bryce at the Mo Valley Film Festival for making sure we got this great audio. Uh, he saved me truly. So I just want to thank him for that. And I know our uh, producer, Brett, will not cut that out because he knows how important sound is for a podcast. So, <laughs> um, so yeah. So And thanks to the Mo Valley Film Festival. The Mining Gap uh, initiative is really important and I, it's a really cool thing that they're doing. So please enjoy this conversation with Laura Dern. Hello. (laughs) So I wanted to start by asking you, uh, Brenda said this lovely thing about you being a supporting and a supportive actor. And um, that scene in Marriage Story, you guys will get to see Marriage Story in a little bit downstairs. But in that scene, there's a moment where you wander out of frame while Scarlett's talking to get her some tissues. And I, as an audience member, could still feel that connection between the two of you. So what does being a supporting, a supportive actor mean to you? Well, uh, and I can't wait for you all to see Marriage Story. I love this movie so much. I feel really, truly blessed to uh, be a part of it in any way. And I, I do say, in, in specifically in addressing that scene, uh, it's great writing and direction by Noah Baumbach. Um, that keeps the connection alive and and is establishing the connection between an individual and a divorce lawyer, uh, very specifically through his writing. Thank you. Um, that's supportive, guys. Just you know, but seriously, like she's your interviewing. She's got a lot on her mind, and she remembers to pour water, right? which I'm so grateful for. And and it's looking out. You know, I I think that. Um, it is easy to forget when we're immersed in our own worlds about others um, in life and in work. And when you add ego and success to that, it's also, I think, complicated for people uh, to remember the um, blessing of a collaborative art. Um, we are not painters. And we are not only writers sitting alone in a room. You know, we have chosen an art form which is so radically amazing that there's one narrative and 150 of us who have learned different crafts come together to tell that one art, that one expression. And that's so beautiful. And if you're not a team player, it is not going to be fun. Um, And you're going to miss out on the relationships of your life and and on deepening that narrative. Um, And so with all that said, it's really, it is easy to say. And I I say that all the credit goes to my amazing parents who raised me around sets where they were those kinds of actors. 
that were team players and loved collaboration. And so I never knew any different. Um, and they'd kill me if I thought of a different option, I think. Um, and so that's definitely the great inspiration. You mentioned collaboration. You're at the epicenter of one of my favorite award season narratives, which is that Noah Baumbach and Greta Gerwig, who are real-life partners, have made these two amazing uh, movies. I'm assuming. I haven't gotten to see Little Women yet, but I'm just going to assume because it's Greta, right? It's amazing. <laughs> it's amazing. Um, and you're in both of them. And so one thing that I think is so interesting about the way those filmmakers work is they've talked about, Noah very specifically has talked about, it doesn't matter if it's my film or her film, we're collaborating on it, we're in it together. And I'm wondering what you saw as a performer in both of those films of that collaborative kind of work between them. And I'm specifically curious about Marriage Story, which is so semi-autobiographical for Noah. So where does the Greta shine through? Does it shine through for you and Scarlett? Where does that come through? Well, first of all, it is beautiful to watch a partnership like theirs. And, um, you know, to watch two artists influence each other and support each other. And um, how I got that lucky, I really don't know. But we literally spent our year last year together um, and she was there with us when we were making our movie, and then he was with us when we were making her movie. I mean, it was just glorious uh, and really has become a family, which I'm very blessed for um, and is rare. So that's a real rare and amazing gift. And, you know, I think that deep partnership, even taking away the romantic nature of the partnership, the, the co-parenting of their partnership, that aspect of their partnership. But just as collaborators, since their first film together, um, she as his actress, but also writing together, and now both as filmmakers, um, I think you feel it in everything. You know, I think that they have a love of language that is very that is a deep and very specific identity for both of them and they hear the rhythm of that language, and as directors guide you to that rhythm so specifically. I mean, it's really like doing, uh, for both of them, a, a play of a, of a great and very specific playwright where you have to have the rhythm down, and you'll understand deeply when you see the film why I say that with all the actors um, and characters um, in their performances, how specific they are. Um, and so I think that's influenced each other by nature of being a couple and also a love of words um, and being such great writers. But, but I also think working so closely together, they remind each other of having empathy, empathy for actors, empathy for the opposite sex, empathy for how complicated relationship is. And I think you see it in both films. Well, I'm so glad that you brought up Enlightened and Amy Jellicoe because I love that show so much and your performance in it. And I wanted to bring up this idea of, of female anger, specifically as it pertains to that clip from Little Women, which I was so thrilled to watch because that, a lot of people don't know, that is like lifted directly out of the book. And oftentimes, mar the Marmee we see on screen is a very saintly, patient, perfect mother Marmee. And Louise Malcott wrote about Marmee's anger. And I was so thrilled that Greta decided to put that in there. So I was just wondering if you could talk about sort of the, the gnarliness of, of Marmee in Little Women. Well, I love that you brought that up right away. And given the theme of our 
conversation and time together, uh, I'm so excited to talk about it because it is interesting that her anger and that dialogue and that scene are so deeply embedded in the book and have not been in a film version. Um, it is about the angelic, all-loving, never complicated, uh, never messy, iconic mother. Um, and I'm very lucky to talk about this very subject in both Noah's movie in a very lucky monologue, which I can't wait for you guys to hear because it's just delicious. Um, and in Little Women because she... I mean, Greta was determined to weave the, the narrative of the Alcott family's story into and throughout Little Women. Um, so it is not just the, the book that Alcott wrote, but the life that she lived. And our characters being influenced by her real family are very much a part of those characters in, in I think, a very new and interesting way. And Greta has made a movie about what it means to be an artist and what it means to be honest about who you are as a woman and the choices that you are going to make regardless of circumstance or culture. It is so perfect to me, I have to say. I, I love it. And, um, and I say that as an outsider, truly, just like watching how she was able to do that was so amazing. I mean, and, and the book is so modern, and that's what's so radical, um, is to, to reread it now, you know, as we were all starting to work on it and see what she talks about, about gender, about sexuality, about marriage, about money, um, about the world of publishing, uh, about being a woman in the world. You know, it's, it's pretty amazing. And I think Greta was determined for us to really spend time doing the research to find out who really was Marmy, being Abigail, uh, Louisa's real mother. And so we really allowed um, a beautiful book of letters between called Marmy and me, um, between Louisa and her mother, to be a massive influence. And, and you feel it as like a, a core to the film. And um, that was an incredible experience. And we learned, and we, and we filmed the movie in Concord, Massachusetts, where the Alcott home still is. And worked with extraordinary historians, so we, we really dove deeply in a great way. And um, Marmy was an abolitionist, was one of America's first feminists, um, was considered America's first social worker, and was a badass. <laughs> and she was angry and frustrated and, you know generous and an empath and yes feeding the hungry and literally their home was on the underground railroad and she was hiding slaves in their kitchen and she was angry when her husband was gone so long regardless of war like when you really understand what it was like to be left alone in poverty with 
these four girls, Greta was really interested in that, and it wasn't necessarily proper, right? Like, because he's gone off to war, you're supposed to never be angry and always generous and never having a hard day, and they had nothing to eat. So um, it was really beautiful to, to have her open up the larger story. Yeah, I'm also really excited to see Justice for Amy March because I feel like Amy March is usually a, a brat, right, is how people think of her. Anyway, I wanted to talk about another uh, thing that we talk a lot about when we talk about actresses, which is um, wardrobe. But you said something so interesting. For you personally, you uh, you told this uh, magazine, Vanity Fair, that you uh, you dress, you have some clothes in common with Renata Klein from Big Little Lies, but you dress for how you want to feel, not how you want other people to see you. But I'm very curious, for people like Renata, who is a style icon, uh, <laughs> your character Marriage Story, who also, like, I think half my notes were like, oh my God, that dress, and oh my God, that dress, uh, wears amazing things. And then, of course, the period ensemble of Marmy. I'm curious for you, as a performer, what does putting on this wardrobe do for you in terms of, of expressing your character? Well, it is amazing that for actors the relationship to the costumer is not spoken about enough. Because often, not the case in Marriage Story, because Noah generously allowed myself, Adam Driver, and Scarlett into his process as he was writing. Um, and so we spent a lot of time beforehand. But on almost all movies, the actor's first collaboration is with the costume designer. You have maybe had a meal with your director, but your first real breaking open the character moment is sitting with the costume designer, talking about character, colors, fabrics, how they move through their life. And so it's a fascinating opportunity, which most of my career, which speaks to the kinds of characters I've been blessed to play, um, has been spent in dive thrift shops. <laughs> um, so it's high fashion is new <laughs> for my characters. Um, and, um, you know, it's, it's really fascinating to watch how anyone uses um, clothing as identity. Can you talk a bit more about that unique collaboration with Noah in terms of creating your character and marriage story and what you wanted to see in there for her? What was beautiful and, and maybe funny, so I'll be careful to speak about it before you've seen the film, but you know, just to say, obviously, it addresses the subject of divorce. Um, but... What moves me the most is that we had dinner and, and Noah and I had become friends and he talked about us getting to work together and finding that thing we could um, start this work relationship um, on. And he, he said, you know, I, I want to I wanna write a love story. I want my next movie to be a love story. And... Weeks later, we had dinner, and he said, yeah, I'm going to make a love story about divorce. <laughs> and wait till you see it, because he truly has done that in a magnificent way. And so um, the, the process he invited us into was really building a narrative, and not necessarily who was playing what part of it or 
how we would fit into the story, but more sharing our own stories from childhood, from heartbreaks, from things as actors we've always wanted to do, uh, things I've wanted to say as a woman, speaking of Minding the Gap, which are infused in there. Um, there's the the use of a specific song from Company, and um, Adam had said he always loved that song, and he and Noah had sort of thought about that. I mean, it's just really interesting how he collects these ideas and and finds his story within them. So that was an amazing, amazing process. Something I'm really interested in terms of Marriage Story is that it's a film that we're going to see at this festival. It's going to be in theaters, and then a lot of people are going to watch it at home because it's a Netflix film. You've got Little Women, which is going to be a wide-release sort of Christmas theater film, and then you've got Big Little Lies, which is a TV show beamed into people's living rooms. Do you think about that when you pick projects? Do you think about how people are going to watch what you're doing? I never I, I never have in terms of how it will be received. I certainly have in terms of the time that it takes. You know, I mean, I, and I would say this as a producer too, when you find a piece of material and are wondering, is this a limited series? Is it a feature? You know, how do you actually tell this story? And that's the most exci exciting thing about the success of cable television and then the world of live streaming is it's just afforded so much more opportunity. I mean, with all due respect to all the efforts we want to make um, in terms of closing any gap um, with parity in, in diversity and in gender, if there's no opportunity and there's no money, it's not happening. Right. And that's the tragic truth as we, you know, we see it in the culture of an America we want to exist that we realize we're not there as in a, as advanced a way as we thought we were when it comes to, you know, kindness. <laughs> Let's just say that. Um, consideration. And so the fact that there is money and the fact that companies, frankly, have been shamed to have to have numbers that make them look good in their boardroom, amongst their crew, um, in terms of female directors, executives. Uh, you know, that that's a one, it's a wonderful moment to, to really see a shift because they need it. And audiences, now that they're giving even just a little bit of a shift in storytelling. Audiences are saying, oh yeah, you show us ourselves and you'll make lots and lots of money. That's what representation means, commerce. Oh, great. <laughs> we can be, you know, we can be considerate and, and, you know, look like we're doing the right thing and make a ton of money. That's fantastic. But it took a long time. So it's like, oh, you know, it's mostly men that watch this cable network, so we really don't have room for female-driven content, or all those stories are changing. And, um, and I think there's room for all of it, and I think that it is so individual. I love movie theaters. I love them. This is where magic occurs, right? And it's not just about widescreen and 70 millimeter. It's about sitting next to a stranger and having a shared moment. You know, we just had one a moment ago. It's just like you're watching a clip and you want to converse or cry together. And, and there is, you know, we, 
we <laughs> have lost a lot of that with these fantastic devices that rule our worlds. And so um, I love that community, and I feel very grateful to Netflix that they are really holding um, that commitment to filmmakers whose films need to be seen in both ways. Um, because, I mean, they're giving a, I think, month-long release to Marriage Story before it is even also get being given the opportunity to be um, live-streamed. So I think we're all learning together. There's a very new model, and there's a place for everything. And, you know, Big Little Lies is a delicious thing to somehow digest in your, in your own home. Um, you know, that's my experience of it. So I, I, you know, and I don't know, you want to see Star Wars on a huge screen. So it's, it's, there's lots of opportunity for all of it, hopefully. Yeah. Um, speaking of Big Little Lies, I think one thing that all of your uh, collaborators have talked about on that show is how rare it is to be in a scene with many female scene partners, right? Mm -hmm. And then obviously you have that with Little Women. You're surrounded by all these young women in that. And your main scene partner in Marriage Story is Scarlett. Um, so I was wondering, you know, first of all, what it's like to be surrounded by, you know, and two of the three directors are, are women in these clips that we've seen. So, you know, what it's like to be surrounded by those female collaborators. And then when you're working with someone like Shalene Woodley or these young women and little women, like what is what wisdom can you impart to them uh, about the industry? Well, I don't know if I can impart wisdom, but I, I will um, start by saying, because Brenda brought up Rambling Rose, when, when we were working on that film, um, our filmmaker had very recently had a baby, and I was only 23, and I remember standing beside her seeing my director, waiting for my director's guidance on the scene we were about to shoot. N not focused on gender, not aware of how the movie was being told differently because it was a woman versus a man. I was there with my director. And um, someone uh, came up and suggested to her that while she was nursing her newborn that she should stop and do that in the trailer because the men on the crew would see it as a sign of weakness. So I just remember being 23 and going, oh, okay, so if you're female and you're directing, everything changes. And I hadn't really been aware, maybe because I was raised by really strong women in film, um, and I wasn't already clocking the differences. But it was at that moment I started to think back to from 11 to 20, the roles I'd been offered and the things that I had seen. And most often it was, you know, the girlfriend. And, and she was either this type or this type. I think we know the two types. Um, <laughs> um, and... You know, if you're a really talented actress, you show them that you're both kinds of girl <laughs> to have a really diverse career. Uh, I'm a Madonna and a whore. You know, um, <laughs> it's so advanced. Um, so, <laughs> so what's exciting about this moment as you're sitting with five incredibly strong, complicated, diverse female characters and actors in one scene. 
and your female director and your female camera operator and your female sound woman, um, which just happened to be the case on, on Big Little Lies, you see that the conversation is about the struggle of being human. And that's what's exciting. You know, and I know Greta and I talk about it a lot because often the conversation is, well, as a female director, oh, it's so interesting to see the female interpretation of, you know, um, and she's like, I just want to be a director. Right. So that, that excites me. Um, and I love being female and I'm ready for it to be vulnerable and emotional and, and messy and, and delicate and all these words that are now seemingly for some because you talk about the younger generation getting advice like oh are we supposed to seem you're not supposed to seem anything <laughs> we're human beings and if we're artists we're here to reflect all of it um and so that's that's the exciting conversation that's starting to be had in a new way i think Excellent. Speaking of exciting conversation, we want to open up the uh, room for some questions from the audience. We have two lovely women running uh, mics on either side, so let's start right there with you. Wait for the mic to be passed to you. Hi, Laura. Thank you so much for being here today. Um, as a young actress, I find myself, when I go into a role, I want to give myself over to it completely. And the last play that I did... Um, I ended up falling in love with my co-star, um, full disclosure. But I'm, <laughs> um, I know, I know that you know, as an actor, we want to be able to open ourselves up completely um, while still maintaining some sense of self and some, you know, boundaries there. So I guess my question is: You give yourself over so beautifully each time. How do you maintain that sense of self each time coming out of a project? Um, coming back to your life and having that healthy, um, yeah, just having like a healthy mental state going in, giving yourself over, and then the come out of a project. Like, what's that like for you coming off of a project? You're so generous. <laughs> I don't. <laughs> um, I, I don't. I, I, I think that growing up doing it, I, um, as a woman... And as an actor, I'm every day struggling with learning how to set boundaries. And I, I am not necessarily skilled. I think I'm particularly skilled more and more as an actor and probably not as a woman. I think it's, I, I, you know, I think it's complicated where we think we're entitled to voice and where we don't know that we are yet. Um, so I'm learning every day. And if anyone in my life has taught me, uh, it is my children. That having children forces you to set boundaries in your workplace like nothing else ever has in your life. Um, and so I don't get to go on location and escape and, it, and, and be lost in it and then eight weeks later come out of it because like someone's in my hotel room waiting for me or on set like, mom, that's so ridiculous. Like you didn't call the school and da da da, da. <laughs> I'm like, Chai, I have to do one more take. Like, mom. And I think that was the drive we experienced coming here. Mom, the, the deadline for the application is no, not November 1st. You're such an idiot. <laughs> So I'm an idiot, and <laughs> I didn't know how to read the website for a university. Um, so, <laughs> yes. So there's much to learn, and um, 
super easy to fall in love with a co-star, so don't beat yourself up. <laughs> oh, boy. You talk about uh, learning from your kids, and I'm curious, you've, you've had so many incredible co-stars over the years. Is there a particular acting co-star that you've learned a lot from uh, in terms of your technique? I've learned professionalism from Meryl Streep and my mother. I've learned multitasking like no one has ever seen from Reese Witherspoon. I've learned um, how to hurl yourself into the abyss by the very beautiful Andrew Garfield. I've learned rawness from Sean Penn. Lucille Ball, I'll always say, has taught me the most of anybody, but I never met her. Um, but I watched I Love Lucy every day of my childhood. Um, and, you know, watching my parents up close for many years, and my godmother was Shelley Winters, who was such an extraordinary actor. So the three of them probably taught me the most. Um, Nick Cage is an incredibly fearless uh, co-star and was so important for me at the time we did the film Wild at Heart. Um, and, and, it, and it goes on from there. You know, Nicole Kidman is so fearless. You know, working with all these amazing actors recently has been, you know, incredible. And now Little Women has been just amazing to watch the the bravery of these young actors and the outrageous bravery of of Adam Driver and Scarlett Johansson you know just really pure bold honest acting and it's like incredible to see all of this you know happening amongst um, a couple of generations of actors I promise you guys will get to ask more questions. I just want to ask one more quick one to follow up on the Lucille Ball of it all. There's something, there's this physical comedy that you do in Marriage Story. I don't want to ruin it for you guys. You haven't seen it, so I won't. But there's just a lot of elbow work for you in that movie. <laughs> guys, keep an eye on our elbows. Um, <laughs> do, you, do you consciously bring that kind of sort of physicality, physical comedy uh, into uh, your roles in that way? I, I think I do. When it comes to comedy, for sure, I think I, I think it's asked of me, um, and I love it. I mean, I, I do. Like I said, growing up watching her and being inspired by it, um, and perhaps that it would be hard to disguise um, <laughs> these incredibly long arms which given that we're this is your neighborhood I remember being a teenager and going to Muir Woods for the first time and they show the the wingspan of, of an eagle and literally I extend beyond the, I was like oh my god so I mean yeah you gotta express yourself with all this information that's available to you uh, alright uh, question right there uh, you're just such a, an amazing actor. Um, how how do you know when a role calls you? Like it, you have to do it, and also, how do you prepare? Oh well, um, the knowing is such a weird thing. Like knowing that you're meant to, you know, be friends with someone that when you first meet them, it's um, it's so weird. I I. It's only happened a few times, you know, by good fortune, if, if you're asked to be part of something and you realize that it feels so meant for you, that's an incredible luxury. Um, but I 
once, you know, before they were even casting, by, by chance, someone told me they'd read the funniest script they'd ever read, which was a film, if you haven't seen Citizen Ruth, which I highly recommend. Um, and I read the script, and there, is, there was at the time, and still is, zero about me that if you read it you would say clearly and I read it and said I'm the only person who should play this part um, which really confused Alexander Payne who's it was his first feature and I don't think he understood why I felt that way but I I got her and I don't know why and I had to play that part and there was something about her you know just heartbreaking life that made me really laugh and really cry at the same time and want to figure out how to do that and and hopefully have in a way no one have any empathy for me but also empathy for her plight um felt like a really complicated and beautiful journey so it it's i'm not sure you know but um but it's exciting when it happens. And it, and it usually is some place in self that where you connect to something they're going through. I mean, for me, it's very personal somehow. Um, and then preparation is across the board. I love preparation. Directors ask for very different kinds of preparation, both with Noah in this long journey I've described and Greta. Uh, asked for rehearsal periods, um, which David Lynch has given Jonathan Demme, who is such a gorgeous artist and amazing filmmaker and friend, always did. Paul Thomas Anderson does. A lot of directors don't. Or now there there is, there's so much content and people are working all over that somebody's come flying in the night before doing a fitting in their hotel room and on set at 5 a.m. and you've never met and you haven't rehearsed, and, and it's unfortunate. You know, it, it, it's lovely when you really get to, you know, have a different kind of opportunity and experience, especially if it's historical, like Little Women, or, um, you know, deeped in an emotional life that's, that's, that takes time to connect with the other people you're working with and, and, and really become a tribe to tell a story together. That's the ideal. Um, I think a lot of us heard, uh, we're envious of the stories we heard of the Big Little Lies cast bonding, but I'm curious how the March family, how you and those young women, how did you make a family before you started filming? Uh, you know, it's pretty amazing. You, I mean, Greta and I had, had it through our friendship uh, that we found... Um, this journey together and we're reading and reading letters and sharing stories and giving me drafts and giving me incredible room to say, oh, I found this one line from the book. Is there any way or, you know, and, and, uh, and I think particularly for Saoirse Ronan plays Joe and she's extraordinary and, and for she and I's relationship, which is, such a massive part of the storytelling and, and what that mother-daughter relationship was and how it impacted the entire family. Because um, I think it is sort of the core um, relationship in a way of that family. Um, and so she and I had a great deal of time together um, and we had rehearsal. And the gift of this, you know, incredible 
female producer in Amy Pascal who found a barn in Concord, Massachusetts and like filled it with food and tea and flowers and a fire going and, and scripts and letters all over the floors and weeks of just like diving in together and literally dancing and choreography and fittings and going to dinner and, and, and walking and hiking and running where the March family did, where the Alcotts did. Um, and Doris Kearns Goodwin, who's our gift, American historian and goddess, um, lives there, uh, as does her son, Michael, who is an amazing historian. And they also really taught us the history of the family and of the place and what was happening at that time. And it was a radical time in literature and in that little town, which is an amazing thing I never knew about and learned a lot about. Um, that is about our time, but I know. But um, I do want to close out by thanking you for one more character that we haven't mentioned yet, uh, which is Dr. Ellie Sadler of Jurassic Park, Aww. with her right, with her sensible boots and her long sleeves, and just getting it done. So, and we yeah, love her. we love her. You're gonna play her again. So, thank you all so much, and thank you, Lord. Thank you, yeah. thank, thank you. you. You're amazing, and thank you all for your questions. That does it for this week's episode. Thanks, as always, for listening. Please come back next week for much more conversation about the Oscar race, which is really in full swing. Uh, in the meantime, you can find us at VanityFair.com, writing about lots of these titles that we've talked about. You can find us on Twitter at LittleGoldMen and on our own. I'm at Katie Rich and Mike. Mike underscore Hogan. And Richard. Rye Laws. And Joanna. Jarethis. This episode was edited and produced by Brett Fuchs, and this week's award for the tagline for Little Gold Men European Edition goes to Joanna Robinson. It is artistic because it is French. Hi, I'm Jeremy Larson, the Reviews Director of Pitchfork, and this podcast is supported by Pitchfork Music Festival. Pitchfork Music Festival will take place July 19th through the 21st at Union Park in Chicago, Illinois. This year's lineup features Jamie XX, Alanis Morissette, Black Pumas, Carly Rae Jepsen, Brittany Howard, Jay Paul, Muna, Jesse Ware, 100 Gex, and many more. The festival also features diverse vendors as well as specialty record, poster, and craft fairs and works to support local businesses while promoting the Chicago arts and food communities as a whole. For more information on tickets and lineup, visit pitchforkmusicfestival.com.